there's an afternoon tea in our cafe area, and I want to give thanks to the Oxford Baptist ladies, especially Mari Sederman, and also to our own helpers, and all the Baptist pastors' wives of Canterbury who've contributed to bake things and to make this time of fellowship happen. Morris's favourite, does anyone know it? Oh, a lot of you do, yes. And so I imagine there's a reasonable number of Afghans out there. And if you're quick, you may be able to get one of those. Um, but we've done it in a, in a, in a connection sort of way um, together so that we can participate. And I really hope that all of us um, will be able to stay and catch up. Miriam would absolutely love it. The family aren't um, taking off somewhere. They, they are remaining here because there will be a graveside committal service tomorrow at 10.30 out at Oxford Cemetery for family and friends. Morris and Miriam, just this year, moved into the city after around 40 years of pastoring at Oxford Baptist. Retirement age came and went about seven years ago, but Morris wasn't ready to sit back with a gold watch and a handshake from Craig. His call remained strong, and he served Jesus every day of his born-again life. So there's so much to rejoice about and to celebrate and go, yay, God. Now, I met Morris in 1987, and we were both at lectures at Baptist College for a couple of weeks. And I've got to be honest and say that Morris looked pretty nervous about being there. He was constantly looking over his shoulder. And we struck up a friendship um, ever since that time. And I think Morris would be the most connected to God person that I've known. He was what I would call a lightning rod. If the Holy Spirit was doing anything in the vicinity, Morris would know about it. The Holy Spirit was constantly giving him insights and prophecy, and he was wired to see things and hear things. And Sandra and I would be taken by surprise many, many times, as I guess a lot of you were too. How many of you were prophesied over by Morris at some stage? Just look around, folks. <laughs> He's pretty active, wasn't he? And he had a gift, didn't he, of being able to encourage people and see the gold in people, to discern what God was doing in people's lives and put that into words, which was so helpful for all of us. He was big in stature and he was big in faith. And he was powerful when he prayed for you. But he also had a gift of being able to spot religion in people or churches. And if he spotted it, he just couldn't help himself. He had to go in there, boots and all, and bust it open. And you were either real in your walk with Jesus when Morris was around, or he would know. And he was a great Christian, wasn't he? He actually walked his faith out. Probably about eight months ago, he and I were traveling to Auckland. We were in the front seats of the plane. We were just taxiing out to take off. Morris gets his worn Bible out of his bag and starts reading it on the plane. And the stewards are staring at us. Their, their, their knees are probably touching Morris's knees. And they were right there. And within just a minute or two, he was engaged in conversation with, with the stewards and, and discussing Jesus with them. It was just so natural for him. He was a leader in the church, and for 40 years he helped in the trenches of people's lives and marriage difficulties and brokenness, and he saw people putting, saw Jesus putting people back together again and right side up. And he was the regional leader here at the time of his passing, 
and for our Baptist churches, and he was helping churches and pastors negotiate change and new thinking. And God opened up ministry across the body of Christ to Morris many years ago. He and Miriam have just done that for years. And his influence over so many years is such that we're all gathered here, and there are pastors and leaders from right across the denominational spectrum here today. Morris just had a big heart, didn't he? For God's church and the leaders of God's church, and he was a mentor and a father to so many in Christchurch. So his passing is just such a huge loss to us. But Miriam said, John, don't make him out to be a saint. <laughs> saint Morris. Saint, like, oh. He was also a very mischievous person. Larger than life in personality. And if you didn't know Jesus had a plan for your life, Morris was very happy to supply an alternative plan. It was kind of like Jesus loves, loves you and Morris has got a plan for your life. And in the last few days, been, we've had so many laughs together amongst the sadness with the family, Sandra and I, just with, with Miriam and family. And Tim was sharing just recently, he was at the rugby game with Morris here in Christchurch, and it was Canter uh, Canterbury and Otago. And even though Tim has played club rugby here in Canterbury all his life, he played it into his 40s for Canterbury, Morris, at, at halftime, was trying to convince him that because Tim was born in Otago, he was actually an Otago supporter. <laughs> There's times when you just had to stand your ground with the man. Not that long ago, I was in a church service with Morris, and it was an evening service where the preacher was long-winded and uh, not too engaging, and he'd been, or she'd been preaching for over an hour. It was about an hour and a quarter, and he, I get this tap on my shoulder, and Morris is saying quite loudly, come on, let's get out of here. I'm sure there's better things to do. And he would just call a spade a spade. Now, the problem was, I was in row two, and Morris was in row three, so I did the good thing and stayed for the hour and a half sermon. And when I looked over my shoulder, Morris was gone. <laughs> and very recently, actually, Morris and I were in America at Bethel Church in, in Reading. Um, and Morris was like a kid in a candy shop being at Bethel. And he liked the formal parts of the conference, but he was captivated by anyone who showed signs of the Holy Spirit being settled upon their life. And we were sitting together in a fire starters seminar. And, uh, you know, there was things to do with the Holy Spirit happening all over the place. But a woman at the back, um, when the Holy Spirit touched her, she would exclaim, Piccadee, Piccadee. <laughs> well, Morris was sold on the first Piccadee. <laughs> and he had one ear on the speaker, which was about 5% of his attention, but he had both eyes and the other ear glued on Miss Piccadee. And immediately it was over. He was up and talking to her and probably getting prayer from her as well. But you know, the Bible tells us that all things have their time and their season. There's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. Time to be born and there's also a time to die. There's a time to dance and there's a time to mourn. In fact, the Bible tells us that blessed or happy is the man or woman who mourns. That to mourn is not wrong, but it's right and helpful as a response to the loss that we feel. And Jesus Christ, as most of us know, when he heard of his friend's death, the scripture tells us he just wept openly. 
So I encourage all of us, and especially the family and Miriam, just to let whatever happens with feelings and emotions in the weeks and months ahead happen, and not to try and think that it's wrong. It's God's way. It's God's way for us. So friends, Morris's time came, and although it's a shock, we want to honor him and thank God for him. So let's just turn to Almighty God in prayer. Father, you give us life, and we're each going to stand before you in death. And we thank you, Lord, for the memories that we have of Morris, all the times, Lord, when our lives crossed, the laughter that erupted, the conversations and the encouragement and the prophecies that we have shared. We're going to miss him, Lord. But thank you for the full life that he lived at 100 miles per hour. And I ask you that you would comfort all of us as we mourn today, but especially Miriam and the family. And I pray that you will draw near to every um, sorrowing heart and help us today in the midst of sadness to also really be able to celebrate Morris's big, bold life. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to sing a couple of songs at this point.
join the play. You give life, you are you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is
tribute, eh? What a tribute. I think Morris would be impressed. Probably can see us here. Sorry, I should say possibly. The Bible says a great cloud of witnesses. Please take a seat. Thank you, John. I too love Afghans, and uh, they are my favourite officially. And so at the office, there was always a real competition to who would get the most, uh, to the point that we would actually hide the Afghans from each other. But this verse that I want to share and read out, John 7, 37 to 39, it's a real life scripture for Morris. It actually, it was one that he went to and uh, that he really loved and got a lot of strength from. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And it really epitomizes actually the ministry of Morris that he had in Miriam, that uh, that. You know, his heart was that people would be impacted and transformed by uh, experiencing God and, uh, you know, and, and being impacted by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Ian. Well, I just want to try and paint a little bit of an overview um, of Morris's life and then invite a number of speakers uh, to come and to highlight particular aspects. Morris was born on the 2nd of August 1946 to Helen and Roger Atkinson. He was number three out of four children. And Roger, his dad, owned a garage at Pleasant Point, but he also worked building electricity pylons from coast to coast um, back in the 40s. Think of this. Tim told me a story um, that Morris had told him about how Roger would pour diesel oil all over the tools on some of the cold mornings and then set it alight so that they would, the tools would come to a temperature where you could actually touch them and use them. The 40s, rugged New Zealand. This is what Morris was born into. Of course, he started school at Timaru South Primary, um, and on the first day, the story goes that when the playbell went for him to go out and just have a bit of a play, Morris decided that that must be it for the day, and he went home. Well, after primary, the secondary, and we'll be hearing a little bit about these early years in just a moment, but he played schoolboy rugby, and he went on to club rugby, and then he went on to play for Otago at representative level. In fact, when we were recently in the States, um, we got to watch an all-black game together, the All Blacks against the Lions, and Morris had great enjoyment and thrill telling me that he played against the Lions in his time representing Otago. So rugby games and matesmanship were a very big part of Morris's life. When he left school, he went to work as a clerk in the city council office. <laughs> when Miriam was sharing this with the family and they were just thinking about it again, everyone was going, what was he thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Writing reports and taking money to the bank. And his son-in-law, John, is a policeman and he had a little wry comment saying, did he bank at all? However, this job did give him money to be able to buy a Triumph motorbike, motorcycle, and I'm sure it was a real beauty. 
In 68, he joined the police and did his training. And if you know Morris and he shared any of the stories of that time in the police, then you'll know that this was a very colorful period of Morris's life that he looked back on fondly. He loved his time in the police. And Morris and Miriam met on a blind date when she was 16 years of age. Do you mind me telling this, Miriam? And she was from a quiet, respectable Christian family in Geraldine, so Mr. 100 miles per hour would have been quite a lot to take in. And she was not gullible. The message I got was that Morris had to work quite hard for her hand in marriage. And after a summer of flirting together, she went to Dunedin to train as a teacher. And then, of course, Morris turned up in the police. And so after a while, Miriam went on to her first year of teaching here in Bishopdale in Christchurch. And Morris would volunteer to escort prisoners up to Christchurch by train that gave him an opportunity to spend some time with that beautiful woman, Miriam. 1970, Morris and Miriam, um, and she was now 21, were married and they spent the next seven years in Dunedin. And Morris continued to play rugby and three children arrived and life was full as well as adventurous. But Morris came to Jesus Christ in 1977 and shortly afterwards they moved here to Christchurch and when he became a Christian, everything changed. As full-on as he'd been into rugby, he was more full-on into Jesus. And Jesus, listening to Jesus and hearing Jesus' plan for his life. And they joined an alive, hot church here in the city called City New Life. And remarkably, just five years later, they became the pastors of Oxford Baptist Church. They were just young Christians. What was God doing? You know? Here's Miriam. She'd been an Anglican. And Morris, he'd been nomin a nominal Presbyterian. No, he wasn't even really a... He was a no-Presbyterian. He didn't go often enough to be called nominal. And now he'd gotten saved and become part of a hot, Holy Spirit-filled Pentecostal church and then invited to become a Baptist pastor. Only God would put that kind of mix together. So God hid him away in a quiet, rural town so he wouldn't get into much trouble. And I'm sure we're going to hear about that from, from Greg. And in 1992, Morris and Miriam went through the most awful tragedy of losing Caroline, their beloved youngest uh, child. But hidden away in Oxford wasn't the whole story. Because Jesus led Morris and Miriam to ministry in a whole host of places around the globe. And they would from time to time leave Oxford and travel to international ministry. And every time, God moved powerfully wherever they went. They had several trips to Israel, the first in 1980, and they were part of the re-establishing of the Feast of Tabernacles festival that Christians uh, attend. And the last trip to Israel was just last year. There were maybe three or four trips there. And they have a long history with YWAM, and they taught in Singapore in 93 and 94 at the YWAM base there. And they've had ministry in Thailand and China and Vietnam and Nepal and America and Canada and South America, where they walked into revival when they were there. They were in Mendoza in Argentina and then on into Chile. And they truly had an have had an amazing international impact. And each trip, not on they not only gave out, but they brought back the fruit of what they'd experienced back into the church at Oxford. And the church began to change, especially so from their trip to the Vineyard Church in Toronto. So I want to invite uh, Janice Kearns, first of all, to come and just speak to us a little bit about those early years and uh, what she remembers of, of Morris growing up.
Well, I'm up here speaking for Roger, my brother and myself, and our families. And this is my husband, Garth, who's come to hold my hand. <laughs> yeah, this is a pretty incredible day, isn't it? We expected Morris to be at our funerals, to be taking them. This is so, you know, incredible. So our parents, Roger and Helen Atkinson, as you heard before, had four children. It was Roger, the eldest, and then me, Janice, and Morris, who was third, and Alan, who was our youngest. And it is with much regret that we lost our youngest brother two years ago, and now a further blow for our next brother to go. So, back in our early life, we lived in Kane Street, Timaru, in our early years. And from there, Roger and I, we went to the main school, and later we moved to 34 Newton Street. From there, both Morris and Alan went to South School, and then they both went on to Timaru Boys High. <coughs> Morris was bright and went on to achieve school third before leaving school and beginning work at the Timaru City Council. However, that's enough of that part of Morris's life. I'd like to recount a few incidents which he was involved in over the years, in his younger years, that we just say that they, these are based on Roger and my memories, so no correspondence will be entered into. <laughs> <coughs> you know, brothers are precious. First of all, um, Morris was a great lover of cats. He just loved gathering stray cats in, in from around the neighbourhood. And Dad got really sick of that, have all these stray cats around. So one day he just called on Roger and said, come on, he said, do something about this. So we called an extermination exercise, and I don't want to say what they did, but however... <laughs> So anyway, we had a cat at home called Tiger, often the victim of one experiment or other. In one incident, Morris put Tiger, we lived in a two-storied house, the boys' bedroom was upstairs, mum and dad's bedroom was right beside the boys, and I was downstairs on my own. So Morris put Tiger out of an upstairs window to test his agility and flight. <laughs> So I came home and here he was putting him outside the window, popped down onto the ledge and then onto the ground. So this went on several times, but fortunately for Tiger, he had nine lives <laughs> and survived unhurt. Another time I came home and here he was tied to a fence with string <laughs> to a hedge. <laughs> he, couldn't, he just tied him there so he couldn't escape. I had to help and cut all the string off him. <laughs> So, a curiosity regarding explosives. <laughs> so this saw him create a number of these devices. One time, he made up a mixture in a jar with a fuse, which he showed to Dad. So while they were visiting a friend's house, between Dad and his friend, they decided that the safest way to test the bomb was to ignite it in an upside-down rubbish tin. 
So to cut a long story short, the bin was blown to smithereens. <laughs> so another time in a science class, the teacher set off a small explosion in the school lab. So Morris was apparently said he could make a better brew. <laughs> so the teacher said, oh, well, go ahead. So when that was lit, the result was a large bang and scorch marks on the ceiling. <laughs> so he was also a member of the um, boys' brigade, and um, I believe he did take a bomb to the camp as well. <laughs> so in our neighbourhood, there were lots of boys around Morris's age that he played with, and, and uh, he was such an adventurous boy. He, um, there were twins across the road, and he was great mates with them, but sometimes one would be on side and the other one would be off side. But there were wars and goodness knows what going on. And we had an empty section next door, and they just used to love getting in there and playing, and we all did. We had a great time in there. So a neighbour one weekend was laying a new smooth concrete path down his driveway, just as the finishing touches were being made. I can see it now. Morris always leaves his mark. And so he unwittingly ran the full length of the pristine path. <laughs> he often called me the informer. <laughs> After being caught out on one of the pranks or another and dust-ups with friends, they were a regular exercise. So ours was the two-storied house and with the three boys and one bedroom upstairs, mum and dad opposite in their room, I had my bedroom downstairs. So as the boys grew older and going out at night, they quickly learned which stairs squeaked when stepped on and mum seemed to have a sixth sense which told her which of the boys were sneaking in and saying, is that you, Roger? Is that you, Morris? <laughs> she, yeah, they just couldn't get away with it. <laughs> His first motorised transport, well, this is what we think it is anyway, was a matchless motorbike. It had no rear suspension, so that must have been really hard on the bottom. <laughs> Roger apparently also wanted a motorbike when he was young, but he wasn't allowed one, so I don't know why, Roger. But Morris must have had a better gift to the gab. <laughs> In his early years, Morris was a great Beatles fan and travelling down to Dunedin for their concert. So evidently during the show, he rushed down the aisle to take some photos and Roger says he got a bit of a <coughs> reprimand from the organisers for that. Then to cap it all off, he ran his green Austin car off the road on the way home and Dad had to go down and tow him home. I'd like to have been a fly on the wall that night because <laughs> I was married then. <laughs> Garth and I were married in 1961 <clears throat> and Morris introduced Garth to golf about 1963, was it? So for the past 54 years, both of them have been trying to master the game and I'm sure Morris's favourite saying has been, I think I've finally conquered my slice. <laughs> yeah, he was a very good golfer too, by the way. Our son Paul in Australia would like to thank and acknowledge Morris for all the support, love, belief and prayer he and Miriam have given to him, his wife and Samantha and their family.
And for both Roger and I, our families, the loss of our two brothers is, is in such a short time is truly heartbreaking. But anyway, just a last word from Roger. He recalled a rugby game when both he and Morris were playing for old boys. Just as the game was about to begin, Morris stepped back onto Roger's big toe with a sprig. Roger says he was sure everyone in the stand could hear him because of the pain. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to finish there, but personally, Morris, you have been such an inspiration to me and to Garth and our family. I'm so proud of you, all your achievements, and why, you know, just the way you have served God. You have been a true servant a mighty man of God. You know, you ran the race. You had such a focus on the goal ahead. You ran, and you now have the prize. You are sitting with Jesus. I just don't know what else to say because, you know, I'm going to miss you so much because you've always been there to, for me to ring and we had great chats and laughs on the phone and visits and friendship. You've been an amazing, caring person who always cared and you were such a godly man and I just thank you and Miriam for for that wonderful pair you were together. You were a formidable pair. So God, you have this man now. And we just say goodbye to you, Morris. Dear brother, we love you so much. Thank you. And now the, the family. Don't know whether you'd like to come up together, family. Might be a good way of handling things. If those that are going to speak would like to come up in family. Okay. Hi there. Um, my name's Melanie, and um, I'm the oldest daughter of Morris and Miriam. And whenever I speak publicly, I sound exactly like my mother. So I'll have to put that to the side. And um, please don't tell me that after the service. Um, I'm, I'm going to share briefly today about the Morris that I knew um, as, as a dad to myself and my brother and my sister Caroline and uh, a husband to my mum. Uh, as John said, it all began with a blind date on Guy Fawkes night um, and yeah when they did marry they moved to Dunedin and three children um, life was busy with policing rugby building a house and I think lots of good friends um, but yeah when dad was about 30 um, he found religion <laughs> or God perhaps or maybe God found him but um, things changed and we moved to Christchurch and then moved out to Oxford after five years in Christchurch. 
Um, over the last week, we as a family have been talking lots about Dad and um, sharing lots of lots of funny stories, but um, I don't think I can do any of the stories justice um, today because they were really all in the telling. Um, I think the fact that Dad was laughing so much that he cried meant that no matter how lame the story was, you had to laugh as well because it was just so funny listening to him tell the story. So I don't think I can pull that off. Um, so I'm just going to give you some thoughts. Um, Tim and I have been talking and um, reflecting on some things. So the first thing is what I've called da is, uh, Dad's favourite things. Um, so Dad was boots and all into whatever he was into. I think obsessive was probably the word. Um, and obviously his probably number one passion was the work he did in uh, the church. But his downtime was pretty focused as well. And so if you were lucky enough to get Dad onto the topic of one of his favourite things, considerable stamina was sometimes required. <laughs> so I'm going to read through a list of some of these favourite things and probably everybody in this room would have had at least one of these conversations on, the, on a, one of these topics. So there was Winston Churchill, railways and trains, World War II, golf, Monty Python, Faulty Towers, pretty much every movie ever made, <laughs> rugby, uh, planning the best way to commit a crime and get away with it, uh, getting firewood, uh, boats, and in more recent years, caravans, and of course, always the latest book he had just read. Um, but I think Dad, perhaps more than all those things, loved people. He was deeply interested in people's lives and, um, and what was going on in them, and he really cared deeply about um, making a difference to whatever it was that they were going through. Um, he really loved to be an encourager and saw things in people that they perhaps didn't see in themselves, but it was that sort of thing that um, made you feel like you could actually... Uh, yeah, conquer whatever you needed to conquer. Um, as I was growing up, and still now as an adult, Dad would want to hear about the latest problem or challenge that I was facing, and this was usually preceded by helpful advice. Um, for the most part, it was sort of fairly wise, um, but sometimes it needed to be carefully considered. Um, <laughs> I, I recall um, when I was playing netball and I was goal keep, Dad's advice was to, as I was guarding the, the shooter, to tell her that I'd poke her in the eye if she got the goal. <laughs> so I, I did have to say that netball's not that sort of game. Um, Dad's approach to a lot of things was perhaps a little unorthodox. Uh, I think Mum spent her life... Um, with equal measures of delight and horror <laughs> at the things Dad would say and do. Um, he was irreverent and he loved to make people laugh. He didn't really have an edit button. <laughs> and whatever he thought was pretty much what he said. Uh, when you gave Dad a, a painted rock slash paperweight for Father's Day, he did not pretend it was going to be useful. Uh, 
Dad also loved telling stories. Um, growing up, there was nothing more than us kids wanted was another police story. Uh, luckily for Dad, when we reached the point where we were well over the police stories, uh, my cousins, uh, Annalise, Genevieve and Charles, they um, were the new audience, and every time they saw Uncle Morris, they would beg for a police story. Um, and after, after them, interest was limited for a while. But in the last couple of years, he found a new audience um, as his grandchildren, and particularly my children, would begin asking for police stories. Um, there wasn't perhaps so much delight from Miriam. As, uh, they, they were resurrected. Um, Mum and Dad were different in lots of ways, as I'm sure you'll all know. But they were best friends, and over time, they they were really worked as a team, and that's really been their their life. They've lived and breathed their work, and that's um, been their commitment to, yeah, I guess transform lives and do what they can to help people. Um, Dad's departure was completely unexpected, and I have been wondering if he'd had the chance to prepare for this, what would he have wanted for today? And um, he did have a movie for every occasion, so I think he may have suggested multiple video clips that we could play, um, no doubt beginning with the Blues Brothers. In fact, he probably would have liked people sort of somersaulting down the aisles. Um, he would have said, don't make it all serious and sombre. Make sure that someone tells some funny stories. He would have also said, make sure there's walnuts on the Afghans. <laughs> and find a good quote from Winston Churchill. So on that note, uh, here's something from Winston that I think Dad would have approved of. Every day you may make progress. Every step may be fruitful. Yet, there will stretch out before you an ever-lengthening, ever-ascending, ever-improving path. You know you will never get to the end of the journey. But this, so far from discouraging, only adds to the joy and the glory of the climb. So thanks, Dad. Thanks for loving Mum and Tim and Caroline and our children so enthusiastically. I'm sorry for all the people that had to listen to Dad rave on about his children. That was one of his other obsessions. Um, thank you for believing in us. And thank you for making sure that Mum would serve up two scoops of ice cream with pudding, not one. <laughs> I'm going to hand you over to John. I've got three pages, but don't worry, it's font 16, because I'll probably get a bit teary. Um, so, hi, I'm John. I'm um, Morris's son-in-law, Melanie's husband, and the cause of uh, these two children down here, two of the five grandchildren. I'm also a police officer, um, so I get to touch on Morris's uh, police career. Um, most of us have heard Morris recount and repeat and repeat again uh, many police stories. Um, some of those stories in today's day and age I'll be a little bit nervous about saying. Um, <coughs> and as Melanie said, that um, Morris doesn't seem to have a, didn't seem to have an edit button. Um, he lived life, as everybody said, he's lived life 
all out, uh, maybe a little too spontaneous at times, uh, not caring about the social conventions or, or rules. If it was going to be funny or a little bit on the edge, edge Morris would do it, um, such as cultivating a cannabis plant in the planter at the police cafe. <laughs> Um, even then, um, stories seemed to follow Morris from a young age. Uh, Tim recounted the other night how Morris had been at a Western movie when he was about 10 and riding his bike home down a hill. Um, he was pretending he was a cowboy and was being chased by an Indian when he rode into the back of a car and knocked himself out. <laughs> um, this, this police era of Morris's life was very special to him. Um, as evidenced by the re and relived by all the stories. It seemed that like Morris's police and rugby careers were, careers were intertwined, mixed in with a little bit of partying. Um, Morris played, as has been mentioned, Morris played police and inter-service to rugby as well as for Otago. So Morris joined the police at the age of 22. Um, in May 1968, Morris hopped on the plane, in, on, oh, sorry, on the train in Dunedin and headed off to Trentham um, for his police training. He was then posted back to Dunedin. After about three years, Morris joined the Armed Defender Squad. I must say, Morris with a gun sounds a very scary concept. <laughs> Soon after this, Morris joined the CIB and trained as a detective. Um, he has been described as being very intelligent and smart and a good detective, although Mel assures me that um, he wasn't that smart and Tim um, did, in fact, sneak a few offences past the Morris radar. After about five years as a detective in Dunedin, Morris took a promotion to Christchurch and he worked as a sergeant for another five years and then resigned and took up the pastoral role in Oxford Baptist Church. A role, I'm <coughs> a role I'm guessing many of the police friends were a little surprised about. I'm also guessing a lot of uh, the Oxford Baptist Church folk would have been a little surprised if they knew a bit more about Morris. <laughs> but they did get to know him. So rather than me repeat, repeating second-hand stories, um, there are a couple of gentlemen here who policed with Morris um, in Dunedin, and they're going to come up. We might as well start coming this way now, past the people, um, to say a few words. So we have Glenn Smith, who I believe Morris flattered with, and Simon Thompson, who trained with Morris, I believe got on the same train up to Wellington and worked closely with him. So I don't know if you decided who's going first, but Simon? Well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak about Morris, uh, my best man, uh, my best mate, and a, uh, a man that I'll miss immensely. His, um, we, we met, as uh, John just said, at the uh, police college and both got transferred back to Dunedin. But while we were at the police college, um, it became evident that he was a troublemaker. <laughs> he... The food that the, uh, the people cooked for us was, uh, well, they managed to ruin baked beans, put it like that. It was, it was terrible. So Morris organised us all to uh, go into the kitchen one lunchtime, get our dinners, walk to the pig bin, tip it out, and then march down to the chip shop. The camp commandant wasn't impressed, and we did a lot of marching after that. Um... This was a long time ago, and it was a land far, far away when I look back. Uh, times have changed. Um, 
but I, yeah, we, we can't really edit the events. Um, so uh, understand that that's what the world was like in those days. Uh, I, I've got just a couple to tell you. One was a, uh, an incident where gate crashers uh, crashed a party in a, a house out at um, South Dunedin. And we were out there cleaning, uh, removing the uh, gate crashers. And uh, one young lad was being particularly objectionable. And Morris gave him a flat arm, oh, flat hand push in the chest. Uh, the young man said, that's assault, that's assault. And Morris said, here. No, it's not. Boom. <laughs> That's assault. <laughs> there was another incident in the octagon where there was a, I don't know whether you were there, Glenn, but it was quite a large scrap going on. Uh, there was bodies flying everywhere. And, and I was walking a, uh, a prisoner back to one of our vans and uh, passed Murray. And he had uh, some unfortunate in a, in a headlock. And, and he was asking, uh, do you give up now? Do you give up? <laughs> and somebody pointed out to Morris that he's going to have to stop strangling him so he can speak. <laughs> um, in the mornings, when in the CIB, we had um, prayers, strangely enough. Uh, but it was not your sort of prayers. It <laughs> It was uh, where all the previous weekends or nights incidents had happened, who got locked up, uh, all, all those sorts of things. Uh, Detective Senior Sergeant was, would read them out, and he was reading about a, uh, a burglary that had happened, and the, the baddies had um, stolen a, a TV, some LPs, and... Uh, L here, big records. <laughs> L LPs. And, um, and some liquor. And they'd taken all this loot back to their, their flat and um, played the stuff and, and drank the liquor and everything was happy until the liquor ran out. Um, in the pause between that and the rest of the sentence, there was a voice from the back. Who was the liquor? <laughs> That's Morris. <laughs> and maybe you have to think about that one. <clears throat> I knew Murray, uh, as, as I've said, from uh, pre-God uh, uh, to real God. <laughs> I wasn't aware of how real it was to him until one day when I asked him to come up and uh, help me dig a ditch. I was trying to divert some rainwater into my neighbor's place, as it turned out. And he, he was... Quite happy, he came up and uh, wielded his, his um, shovel. Um, I've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. I got the Sermon in the Ditch. <laughs> Maury was, uh, he'd just heard, just been given the word, and boy, was he full of it. <laughs> and uh, looking back, yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. So, Maury, uh, Miriam, thanks for knowing you. Oh, hi, my name's Glenn Smith, and uh, pleased to say that uh, I was a friend of Morris's and Miriam, and uh, I recognise from the looks your kin, although I've never met them. 
Uh, oh, God. When I think of Morris, I think of God, all right? <laughs> I, I think I uh, was part of uh, Morris sort of coming to God. <laughs> because one night, and I saw it when I looked at that motorbike up there, with Miriam sitting there, I remember a night on that motorbike. The one and only time I ever went on the back of the motorbike. <laughs> and I think it set the tone for his, you know, his life as a pastor. Because the more I prayed, and I said, for God's sake, Morris, for God's sake, the faster he went. <laughs> and I think that's pretty indicative. But I, well, we were just boys. It was me and Simon and Morris and the full Welsh and many other young policemen. And, you know, it's good to be able to hear it come today and, you know, to give thanks um, to Morris, you know, for his work in the police because, you know, very demanding um, when we look back and we're only boys and we're stuck out there in this big world of policing and uh, you either had it or you didn't, you know. You've got to have character and you hardened up a bit and then uh, luckily for Morris he softened up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I shifted to the uh, Dunedin uh, in Vicargan in 1975 and someone said to me one day, Morris, sometimes I called him odd job, he's been dumped in a tank up at Waikari Church in his underpants. <laughs> I said, what are you on about? He said, he, you got baptised. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> you know, I felt, I felt quite pleased and I later met Morris and Miriam up in Christchurch and come up to see them and... Um, we had a discussion around the table and um, it, w it was good, it was good. We both saw uh, a different side of how people can come to, you know, their God as they understand them and um, that was real good. But I tell you, Morris was a, a terrible guy for uh, playing pranks. We had a big gold police sergeant, uh, what was his name, Murray, and he had great big ears and he had brassed Morris off one time. And we were, we were working on shift. Morris went into his office before we were about to go up and do the night beat to every hotel in the main street of Dunedin. And he painted fingerprint ink around the phone. Then gave him a ring. <laughs> <laughs> no one on the phone, you're there, you're there. <laughs> Out he comes. Atkinson up the beat with me, put his hat on, and Morris, you know, it showed the strength of the man to go through every pub in Dunedin with a sergeant with a great big black ear, <laughs> with everybody looking at him and laughing, <laughs> and Morris hung in there and denied it all the way to the bank. <laughs> and, oh, like, spontaneity, you know, what, what a great thing to have in today's world. Morris, I just love them for it. You know, I never, ever not, we would laugh till we cried. And he was, you know, just spont spontaneous, you know. He said what he thought, and it's really refreshing, and I sort of miss that in today's society. Um, I could go on and on and on and on. <laughs> but you would have you heard most of the stories, but the best one I ever heard, he was, of Morris, to show 
We used to do a CIB night patrol. Morris was six foot five, you know, pretty well built. And uh, he got stuck in a difficult position with someone his own size. <laughs> and this guy, Morris, was giving him some direction. <laughs> and uh, he was giving Morris some direction. <laughs> and he said, well, what and if are you going to do about it? Morris, six foot five quickly grew to about seven foot five when he opened his coat up and showed him his police revolver. <laughs> that was Morris. Morris got, in, Morris got into a bit of trouble for that. <laughs> but Morris got in the armed defender squad. So yeah. <laughs> it was a different world. And I know Morris will be up there somewhere and he'll be slapping his knees He'll be loving it because, you know, he loved the spontaneous, uh, you know, being spontaneous. So I'll end it there. Miriam. Thanks, guys. So, Morris, your stories will be repeated and repeated, as you did, but hopefully not as part of some judicial inquiry. <laughs> um, larger than life a tower, a spiritual father, bigger than life, a giant of the faith, good-hearted. These are the terms that people have used since um, Morris has um, departed. While these terms reflect Morris accurately, I did call him obnoxious the other night after he beat me at Scrabble, so sorry about that, Morris. <coughs> um, in any picture of Morris, you'll no doubt see a little sparkle in his eyes, plus a hint of his caring side. I've always been impressed how um, Morris and Miriam have worked hard in a partnership, in a very strong partnership, um, complementing each other extremely well. As he, as he did in his policing, Morris devoted himself to everything he did, um, giving a huge amount to his past uh, policing, pastoring role, Im impacting on many people. And we respect him uh, for his devotion and hard work. While Morris has, has been a great-grandfather to his five children, we particularly are particularly sad that Morris isn't around to keep up this valued input, although, <clears throat> although it may mean the kids are easier to parent and keep safe. <laughs> um, after Morris's passing, I read a verse in the Bible the other day, I think it was about a chap called Barnabas, but it was simple and described Morris really well. It was Acts eleven twenty four, and it says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Morris, you'll be... <clears throat> Excuse me. Morris, you'll be sadly missed. Um, you've filled great big shoes and you've left an amazing legacy. Um, you'll be sorely missed. We will honour your legacy by trying to fill those shoes. Um, you will live on in our hearts and the lives we live. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. And thank you for our police colleagues. But there is life after the police force, and I'm evidence of that. <laughs> but I just really want to briefly say thank you so much for coming today. I just want to say some have travelled a long way. We've received messages from uh, many parts, France, Singapore, South America, and just so many outpourings of love. And I really value each one of them. I thank you for the the effort that some have flown in from New Zealand, Auckland, 
And I just really, I want you to know that it means a tremendous amount to me and my family to know that at this crisis-centred time for us, that you have been so caring and kind to come today. So thank you. I also want to um, just introduce that we're going to go on now to a PowerPoint of our of some um, photos through the years, but backing it is the um, song To Dream the Impossible Dream. And for us, uh, when we were in Dunedin in the police force, as you have heard, this was a song that captured Morris's heart, that he could dream an impossible dream. He could go where no one else could go. And it continued to stir his heart. Through the years, we'd watched the film The Man from La Mancha, and this song would ring out again and again through our life, and it has been an inspiration to us. So today, as you view these photos, the backing is to dream the impossible dream. 